the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Good morning, black man. How you guys doing? Good. Good. Um, if you've got your Isaiah book, um, page 84 is where we will be. Um, can I just have a full moment of transparency? The book of Isaiah is deep and mysterious and confusing. And, um, and, and I really think that the guys who have um, been getting us through this study, taking us through this the past few weeks, are champs. Because there are weeks when we read through the passage and I'm thinking, what does this even mean? Where are we going with this? And then they take it and they dissect it and uh, show us not just what it meant for the Israelites in their time, but what it also means for us here and now. Um, so basically to take this book and dissect it the way they have um, is respectable. And, uh, and then they come to me and they say, hey, we want you to do Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. It's like they just gave me this gift. They just said, here you go because um, Isaiah is deep and confusing and mysterious. So we're going to give you Isaiah 40. So, man, um, Isaiah 40 uh, has to be in like the top five best chapters of the Bible. And I don't know if you're allowed to say that, but I just did. It is one of those best chapters in the Bible that you just kind of find yourself going back to over and over again. So they said, we want you to do Isaiah 40. And my thought was, all right, which verses? And they said, we want you to do Isaiah 40. And <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to try to get through this. But, man, I tell you what, this is one of those chapters um, we could spend weeks on. It could become its own um, series that we just parked on. But um, we're just going to take this and kind of uh, get through it as, as uh, quickly as we can. Um, and, but before we do, um, let me just kind of open us up with some prayer so that we can uh, get started on the right foot. Father... Um, I surrender this moment to you, Lord, I I surrender my mouth and my voice to you. I pray that you would speak through me, um, broken as I might be, Father, and I pray that you would uh, speak to us all, uh, that your word would move powerfully, that your spirit would uh, land strongly here, and I pray this in your son's name, amen. Uh, In the late 1500s, Poland had perfected the art of cavalry warfare. Uh, They had developed this unit of elite soldiers called the Winged Hussars. And uh, essentially, this was an army of horsemen um, who carried long spears uh, and wore these wings on their back with a wooden frame that they had placed all these elaborate feathers on it. And, And most... Theories say that these wings that they wore were a sort of defense from anything hitting their back. Others think that it was for the noise as they rode on the horses. It created this loud noise that made them seem like a bigger army. It would scare the enemy's horses. Uh, Either way, if you saw these guys coming at you, you would be intimidated. You would be very fearful. And so the typical purpose uh, of this unit of elite soldiers was... A cavalry. They would ride in um, to, to basically save a city that was besieged. Essentially what you had was a city who was in lockdown and an enemy who had them surrounded. And this enemy was basically doing siege warfare. They were uh, outlasting this city. And eventually as the city just held its defenses, the resources would be 
depleted to the point where they would either starve to death or have to surrender or make a final last stand where they would be wiped out. And things would look pretty bleak for these cities who were besieged. And then the winged hussars arrived, right? And the direction of the entire battle would change because the, the tactic of the winged hussars was they had these spears and they were a heavy cavalry. So they were armored up and they would basically just take their horses and plow into the enemy army and they would just drive straight through them. And once they got to the other side, they would turn around, get another spear and do it again. And they would just drive through these enemy armies over and over again until eventually they would break and retreat and they would save this city that was besieged. I say all that to say this. That's basically what Isaiah 40 is right now. What we are about to read and what we're going to arrive in this morning um, is, is a change in the entire direction of the book. Because what we had before was uh, um, so many people have thought like because there's such a difference between the first 39 chapters and then there's just like this total shift in Isaiah 40, a lot of people have thought it, Isaiah didn't even read it or, or write it, rather. A lot of people speculate that this wasn't even Isaiah writing because it's just so different. Uh, and a lot of those theories don't hold up. Isaiah is still the popular belief um, of authorship of this one. Um, so basically what it is is the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is God calling out the Israelites on their sin. Right, Just one thing after another, the Israelites are failing, they're messing up, they're sinning, they're rebelling, they're turning against God. And for 39 chapters, it's pretty bleak. Like you just have God like calling them out one time after another, and you begin to really feel the weight of Israel's sinfulness and their brokenness and their rebellion. Uh, and eventually you even get to um, chapter 39 um, and, and in verse 6 where it's just kind of like you have Isaiah um, prophesying to the Israelites. And it's just like one thing after another. And then you get to verse 39. And let me read just verse 6 for you to kind of set up where we're going. So chapter 39 verse 6, Isaiah says, uh, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look. Okay, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. All right, it's, it's pretty bleak. And this is kind of where it's all climaxing here up to chapter 39, where it's just kind of like, this is not looking good for the Israelites. So for the first 39 chapters, there's this ominous prophecy of them being taken over by Babylon. And so they're living in fear of captivity. And, and Babylon's not the only enemy that they're dealing with. And then it's kind of like a few pages are just torn out of Isaiah's journal. Because we jump from 39 of a prophecy about captivity to 40, which is really their smack dab in captivity. And, and so we kind of make a, a jump even in the timeline here of prophecy about captivity to being in captivity and having been in captivity for some time now, right? So it's just this huge shift in the, in the change of direction for the book of Isaiah. And, and here in chapter 40, Isaiah opens up with this amazing pronouncement to Israel. And, and, and keep in mind, like we have spent 39 chapters like warning Israel, 
your time's coming. You're going to get it, right? You, you keep rebelling. God's wrath is going to come. There's going to be exile. There's going to be captivity. And we just spend 39 chapters of this warning. And there's these little bits of the gospel all throughout chapter 39 that our guys have done great to find and sift through and, and bring uh, to the surface. But chapter 40, he's just kind of like, oh, I've, got, I've got some good news for you, right? We, we spent 39 chapters laying it on thick, but Isaiah... Uh, says, opens right up in chapter 40 with these words, Comfort, comfort, my people. Comfort, comfort, my people. They're in captivity. So what, what comfort is there for Israel, a people in captivity? What comfort is there for people who've been carried from their homeland, where, where the palace of the king has been emptied out and looted? What comfort is there for a defeated people? For these sinners. So simply put, okay, here, here's the sermon in a sentence. Simply put, the comfort God extends is that his unrelenting mercy matches his perfect justice. God's unrelenting mercy matches his perfect justice. I could just as well use the word grace. You know, God's grace brings comfort. But I really want to bring up these two elements of his grace, his justice and his mercy, and how they are a perfect match for one another. So let me explain. Isaiah uh, chapter 40, look at verse 2. This is what God is telling Isaiah to pronounce to his people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity... Has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, at first, this sounds like Israel has been dealt uh, double what they deserved, right? That God um, gave them twice as much as what they deserved. And it kind of concerns me a little bit how I just kind of breezed past this verse thinking, oh, yeah, God just gave them twice the punishment that they deserved. That was kind of my initial thought until I realized that's actually pretty bad theology, <laughs> Right? God is perfectly just, which means he gives exactly what is deserved. Nothing less, nothing more. Right? Uh, so the word double, uh, when it says that Israel has been given double, uh, is a little misleading. But think of it like this. Okay? The idea is that God matched their wrongdoing with his justice Perfectly, we, we talk about like when a blanket, we double over a blanket, right? You take a full-length blanket and you match the two halves together. It's doubled, right? So that is, that's what God is doing. God has matched their sinfulness with his, with his justice. Their sin was this big. His justice was this big. It was doubled. And so God is just, and he will display this in fearful ways. I mean, if you just read through the Old Testament, you see it, but then you see climax at the cross where this was the clearest picture we have of God's justice poured out on Jesus Christ. But he's also merciful. His justice is fierce and and it's displayed in fearful ways, but he's also merciful and will be exact in the ways that he deals with us. He was exact in the way that he dealt with Israel. And you'll be exact with the way he deals with us. So what this means is basically the purpose of the Babylonian captivity for the Israelites was not just to show God's wrath and justice. It wasn't just God saying, I'm so angry, captivity for you all. Like he wasn't just displaying wrath and justice. It was also 
always a means to mercifully restore them back to himself. The, the purpose of Babylon, for them to be carried away from this promised land, was for them to wake up and see that God is being merciful in the way that he is dealing with them. To bring them back and restore them back to him. So all along, God had planned to bring this comfort. All along, throughout the first 39 chapters, God planned to get to chapter 40, verse 1, to bring comfort. That was his plan all along, to bring comfort and relief. And it was to come just in the nick of time, right? He would come and bring a change in the direction of the entire Israelite story, of their history even, to the point they would remember this. They would remember this shift in the story of God's grace and his mercy and his justice. So as Isaiah is trying to bring the Israelites comfort and and by showing them God's justice and mercy, he brings them through this journey of three realizations in order to help them receive the comfort and to receive God's mercy and see it matched up with his justice, he brings them through a journey of three realizations. But before I get to those three realizations, we've talked about the Israelites back then. Let's address the state of humanity right now first. Let's, let's see the parallels between mankind now and the Israelites then. And I think the Sunday school has been hammering this for some time because we're in the story of the Israelites there right now. We're going through Exodus and we see it's like God's grace. Israel rebels. God restores and gives more, more grace. Israel, and it's just kind of like this one for another. Um, and it's just this ongoing rebellion. And, and, it, and that's an easy layup. It's like, yeah, okay, that's me too. Like, I'm the rebel. God gives me good things. I tend to worship those good things instead of worship him, or I tend to um, complain that he's not giving me more good things, or I wish for the things I used to have. Like, that's totally us. We're, we're the ungrateful ones. We're the discontent ones. We are essentially Israel in this story. And because of that, we're all looking for comfort, aren't we? If there's anything I know about mankind, and especially about Americans, is that we want comfort. We just went to a... Um, a home and remodeling expo um, on Friday afternoon. It was at the, uh, the music center. Um, and uh, <laughs> it is not something I would have chosen to go to nor pay money for, but my wife wanted to go. And so, you know, I try to be a good husband. I make sacrifices. So, um, so, so we went and, and there was like at least three or four different like sections of these beds. And all these beds, like they, they move, like they kind of move so that you can have your head up or your feet up or both up. And, you're, and, and it's like this memory foam, but it's not just memory foam. It's cooling memory foam. So you don't sweat in your bed with these, because these memory are hot. So, so then these things also like kind of massage because they kind of just like, so you lay on it and the guy the whole time he's like, yeah, so when you lay on it, you can get your feet up and it's the way that you would lay on your side. And if you get your back up when you're a belly sleeper, you can get your weight on your chest instead of on your neck and and it, it can massage so it gets your blood circulating. And I'm like, this is the pinnacle of comfort in America. Like, this is crazy. Like, and and it was cost, of course, like $5,500 before tax and before ship. Like, it was just this crazy thing. But, dude, we love comfort, right? But we look for comfort in all sorts of ways. We look for comfort in trying to control our environment, right? We want to control the, the circumstances around our life. We try to control the people 
in our lives? How many of our relationships we treat less like this mutual um, love for one another and more like you will become my servant, right? We want to control the people in our lives. We want to control even God, right? How many of us want to try to play those games of like, I was the good boy, I was the good little girl, and you're supposed to bless me because that's what I heard growing up is if I do this, then you do this, right? This is us trying to play a game and control God. We do it all the time. And when we feel like we're not controlling, when we feel like we're out of control, we turn to even darker means where we want to um, basically treat that feeling of uncontrol with, with whatever medication we can find. And we'll make anything a medication for that feeling, right? We just want comfort. We want relief. We want to just drop all the stress. We want to drop this need for control, right? What are we looking for comfort from? We're looking for comfort from our shame. We're looking for comfort from our guilt. We're looking for comfort from our powerlessness, our grief, our fears, our sinfulness, and our brokenness because it weighs heavy on us. We all know it. We all feel it. When we're laying awake at night, we know it, and we want comfort from it. So we go looking for this thing. So here's my question for you, okay? Are you paralyzed by fear? Are you broken by guilt and shame? Are you, do you feel controlled by everything else and you're the one person who has no control on anything? Can I just tell you, there is comfort for us too. That Isaiah 40 verse 1 was meant for us too, not just the Israelites. And if we want this deep comfort that God extended to them, we also are going to go through a journey of three realizations. The first one, um, it's a little uncomfortable, oddly enough. (laughs) But the first realization is this. I am far more sinful than I realized. I am far more sinful than I realized. Look at verses 6 through 8. A voice was, crying, was saying, cry out. And another said, what should I cry out? All humanity is grass, and all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers The flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. If you ever wondered about the context of what we say right before someone preaches, there you go. That all humanity is grass. All of our flesh is like the flowers, and eventually the flowers fade and the grass withers. Uh, A couple weeks ago, uh, I stopped by um, Walgreens to buy myself, my wife, some flowers, and um, And I did that because I'm a good husband and simultaneously a bad husband because I did not get her flowers for Valentine's Day. And so I had some ground to make up here. And her birthday passed and I didn't get flowers for that one either. So she's like, I need to get her some flowers. I got some ground to make up here. So I got her some flowers. And and they were great. It was just a few roses. And we put them in this nice vase. And they sat on our countertop. And like two days later, they're just like... I mean, if you get roses and you put them in the water, it's just all like they're great for about a day. You can smell them for about a day. 
and then they're done and they just give up the ghost, right? And, and they've sat on our counter for about a week after that. So it's just kind of like a reminder of, of just, well, <laughs> I wanted to say a reminder of my love for her, but I feel like dead flowers aren't a great reminder. Um, it was a reminder of our flesh, right? Our, our bodies, the grass withers, the flower fades. I looked at it and I literally thought, and this is thanks to Blackman's liturgy, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Right? I was just looking at this and I was just having a little moment of worship every time. Not really. I'm not that spiritual. But um, this is the idea, right? The grass withers, the flower fades. So I've been lately obsessed with this um, thing called the Enneagram. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Enneagram but I've just been like, like all about this thing, learning about this Enneagram. So basically, it's an ancient personality typing system. So if you've heard of Myers-Briggs, that's like the modern-day version of uh, the Enneagram. Uh, but what the Enneagram focuses on, and this is why I've been so intrigued with it, is because it doesn't just focus on your behaviors, kind of like the Myers-Briggs does. This focuses on your motivations. And really, it oftentimes focuses on those motivations that we're often blinded to. We're usually blinded to them because we don't want to know them, because we know these are bad motivations. So it exposes a lot of these wrong motivations. So there's nine types, and it says like, okay, so type one is motivated by a a need for everything to be perfect or to improve everything, for everything to be just right. A two is motivated by a need for everybody around me to be okay with me, and I just need them to approve of me. So it just kind of goes through all these Uh, types and it explains these wrong motivations right and a lot of people who take the Enneagram when they first find their type they're like oh that's so cool I'm I'm the nine or the eight or whatever it is but then you read on it and you're like ooh ooh I don't like this I don't like this at all right because it starts exposing all these things that are wrong with us all the reasons we do things almost subconsciously not realizing like this is kind of twisted right But it's so good. I love it because I feel like we can't grow unless the sins that are stunting our growth are revealed. And so anytime our sin gets exposed, it's a blessing. It doesn't feel like it at first. But the reality is, as long as you're not addressing it, as long as it's hiding, you're not growing. You're stuck. So perhaps you already realize this, but the reason Blackman has a time of confession in our in our liturgy and in our services is because we know that an experience of God's comfort requires a thorough understanding of our sinfulness. An experience of God's comfort requires a thorough understanding of our sinfulness. And God wants us to see and feel our brokenness. That's why chapter 40 doesn't come until we're ha- more than halfway through the book of Isaiah. He's spending 39 chapters of exposing sin. He wants to take great lengths to expose the brokenness and the sinfulness in our lives. Because God knows that much like a, a fish born in water doesn't know how wet it is, we who are born in sin don't know how sinful we are. And so God goes to great lengths to expose the sinfulness, to let us see and feel the brokenness in our lives, right? So let me explain a little bit deeper, okay? Sin isn't just about the things we do or say that are wrong. 
It's about why we do and say the things we do. It's much more about our motivations. Because the scripture is clear, even good religious things done in the wrong way or for a wrong reason is sin. It's a heap of filthy rags, right? It's our, our attempts of righteousness are always marred by our sinfulness. I used to think of, of sin like, like a mole, right? If I could just get this cut off, if I could just get this removed... Well, then I'd be pretty good, right? Sin was just this isolated thing in my life, or if I just didn't do that, well, then then I'd be okay. And I've really come to realize that sin is a lot more like my veins. It just runs through me to my very core, and it's affecting everything. It affects the way I worship. It affects the way I treat my wife. It affects the way I work. It affects the way I interact with other people. Sin is affecting everything. It's not an isolated mole. It's the veins in my body running through everything I do and I say and I experience. Even the way I just enjoy beauty. My sin is marring it so I can't enjoy it to its fullest extent. That's just the nature of my depravity. right? And it's the nature of all of our depravity. We are far more sinful and broken than I think we often realize. In this passage, it says the grass withers and the flower fades. But like your body aging and breaking and getting old and eventually dying is the obvious result and the most obvious, uh, uh, shall I say, reminder of our sinfulness. That our body is the grass, our flesh is the flower, and these things fade and they die and they wither. So a daily reminder for me is when I'm like, man, I'm 28. Why is my back hurting all the time? Like, I should not be feeling creaks in my knees. I'm too young for that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, the grass withers and the flower fades, even after a week of being on our counter, right? It's a reminder of our sinfulness and the depth of our depravity. So if you long for a deep comfort, if you're looking for relief, from your sinfulness, from your brokenness, then first, you have to stop ignoring it. First, you have to face it and begin to realize the extent of your sinfulness. It's not a pleasant reality to face. Like, I'm not saying this is a happy journey for you. I'm saying this step of it can be cruel. It can be hard. It comes with a lot of tears. It comes with a lot of humbling experiences. And especially if you've got someone else on this journey with you helping identify those sin points in your life, it gets pretty difficult. And there can be some tension. And things can feel like they're getting worse before they get better. But let me just tell you, it does get better. Because now we get to go to the second realization. Realization number two. Well, let's just refresh. Number one, I am far more sinful than I realized. Number two... God is far more glorious than I imagined. God is far more glorious than I imagined. That's why at Blackman, in our services, right after the confession of sins, we go right into this confession of faith where we remind ourselves, God is still God. He is still good. In fact, this is where Isaiah goes. Look at verses. In fact, can I just read this to you? Let me just take a moment to read verses 9 through 28. Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. 
Raise it and do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure? Or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on a scale? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who gives him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon's cedars are not enough fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as empty nothingness. With whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for a comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts? A metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them. And they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number. He calls them all by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say in Israel, why do you assert my way is hidden from the Lord and my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> right? In summary, basically, God's glory dwarfs the cosmos. It humbles the most proud ruler, is sovereign over all nations. It is beyond compare and incapable of being repaid. It exposes the deepest secrets and brings healing to those broken. It has all authority over all of nature, and it can simultaneously undo your entire world and show you a far grander one in the same instant. This is God's glory. 
And if his glory is enough to burn brighter than the cosmos and to snuff out nations, then his glory is enough to bring you comfort. And if our sins run deeper than we know and affect us in ways that we cannot tell, then the only hope we have is something that runs deeper and affects us in ways greater still. And what is there that can do this? What is there that can bring us comfort other than God's glory? So any sin that we commit is really a glory problem, right? It's that we've decided to worship the glory of the creation over the glory of the creator, right? We have bought the lie that something or someone is more glorious than God and worth more to us and deserves more of our worship than God. Our sin is a, a problem of glory. And, and so it's our goal then to live not to just stop sinning. I'm just, I'm just not going to do this anymore because that's treating it a lot like that mole. It's just thinking, I'm just not going to do this thing. That's not, that's not the Christian life. That's not what God has called us to, right? It's rather... Living so that I might more enjoy the glory of God. That's the Christian life. That's what God has called us to, that we might allow creation to do its job, which is to simply point us to the glory of Him. Right? To let creation not become the idol, but instead to point us to the one who is the creator. Right? So His glory is enough to expel the feelings of shame, the feelings of guilt, the feelings of pride, the feelings of fear, your feelings of, of inadequacy. It's enough to bring this comfort and to usher in this peace that surpasses understanding. That's what his glory is. It is enough to do these things. So when we have a good perspective of our sinfulness and then we quickly run to this perspective of God's glory, then we're now ready for the third realization. And that is this. I am now far more righteous than I knew. I am now far more righteous than I knew. Look at verses 29 through 31. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Where does the strength come from? Where does this endurance come from? Where does this comfort come from? He says, those who trust in the Lord. Those who have seen their sinfulness, they've seen their brokenness, and they've chosen, I will no longer rest in that. I will no longer trust in my ability to handle that. Instead, I'm going to rest in the glory of God. I'm going to trust in Him and His might as He has displayed it in the cosmos to bring me rest, to bring me freedom from these things, to bring me comfort. So what comfort is there for the sinner? It's the truth that when you've put your trust in him, he has made you far more righteous than you knew. I think one of the greatest defeats 
in a Christian's life happens between the second and third realization. We believe God is good. We believe he is loving. We believe that he is powerful. But I believe I'm bad. And I believe I am unlovable. And I believe that I am weak. And somehow that belief elevates itself over God's glory, right? The belief that his glory is not enough to redeem this. It can't redeem this situation. It can't redeem this sin in my life. It can't bring me out of this. The truth is, brother, sister, you are far more righteous than you know. We are far more righteous than we've often believed. I think sometimes we treat ourselves as if we are still dead and defeated. I think we still treat ourselves, when we sing those songs for such a wretch as I, we still think I'm stuck in that wretch place, right? But God has brought us out of it. He's bringing us not just through it, but he's calling us out of it and above it, right? So I think when we call ourselves dead and defeated, listen, that's not the reality God lives in. When we treat ourselves as unlovable and unforgivable, that's not what God thinks. He sees something completely different. He sees a totally different reality. Right? Listen, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just offering to take your sin. He wasn't offering to just take your unrighteousness. He was also offering to give you his righteousness. And I don't know if you know a whole lot about Jesus' righteousness, <laughs> But it's perfect, right? There's nothing more righteous than Jesus' righteousness. And that's what he's chosen to give to us. It's the doctrine of imputed righteousness that God wrote Jesus' account on top of ours. And so now when God looks at us, he's not seeing wicked sinner. He's not seeing unredeemable, unlovable wretch. He sees you like you could walk on water. Like, literally, what did Jesus' righteousness do? It didn't just stop him from sinning. It allowed him to do these miracles. He was able to, to do these great things. And so when God looks at you and sees his righteousness, he sees you, powerful, walking on water. Right? Now, this might feel a little uncomfortable for some of you. It might feel like that's a little arrogant. Calm down. You're getting a little too far here. You're getting carried away. And that's okay because I'm going to take it a step further now. You will never be more righteous than you are right now. Let that sink in a little bit. You will never be more righteous than you are right now. That doesn't sound right because you're like, well, I sin. (laughs) And when I get to heaven, I'm not going to sin anymore. So bada boom, bada bing, more righteous. Mm, Not quite. Because the qualification for heaven is absolute righteousness. And so even if you get there, listen... (laughs) You've been made perfectly righteous, and there's nothing further for you to do to earn righteousness. But I think a lot of Christians still believe I'm not righteous, or worse yet, I have to earn this righteousness. Right? And that's not what God is saying. He's imputed his on us. His account account has been written on top of ours. And so, yeah, we still sin. Obviously, we're still broken humans. We're still broken individuals. But this righteousness is written on your identity, right? And when you're redeemed, you're redeemed from the inside out, right? So he redeems the core inside of us and the transformation begins happening 
from the inside out. And so, yes, we still sin, and yes, God still sees that. Yes, he is still grieved from, from us choosing something over him, from us choosing another glory over him. But I'm telling you, he doesn't see you as the broken sinner anymore. He sees you as righteous saint. And we will never be more righteous than he has made us now. As a believer in Jesus, for those who have put their trust in him, yeah, the young men still faint and we grow weary. But those who trust in the Lord, God is saying, there's nothing more for you to do. You don't have to earn anything here. Grace requires nothing from you. If you put your trust in him, place your faith in him, admit I am far more sinful than I realized, but God is far more glorious than I know, and he has made me, once I've put my trust in him, far more righteous than I know. So if we deny this truth, then we deny God's comfort, and we're left to our own devices yet again. If we deny this truth, we're left to go find comfort in something different. And none of these things are truly satisfying. None of these things truly bring comfort. But for those, and I think there's a lot in this room who can attest to this truth, for those who choose to rest in the glory of Christ, those who choose to put their trust completely in Him, there is a peace. There is this glorious comfort that surpasses all understanding. And there's nothing that even comes close to comparing with his glory and with his comfort. In fact, when his comfort comes in, when his glory shows up in your life, it changes the entire direction of your story. It changes the entire direction once he arrives, once we've embraced this comfort, once we've experienced his glory... The tides change and we're left to just abide and to just dwell and to just be in his glory. To just breathe it in and breathe it out. So these are three realizations that I think might sound simple, but these are not easy. Right? Because this is a matter of belief. And usually we're believing a whole lot of other things. Right? And so here's the battle for the Christian, and here's what's left for us to actually do, okay? Put down the hammers, put down the saws, quit trying to build something for yourself here, and just rest in Him. Just trust in Him. Just embrace His glory. Just find Him here. Look for Him wherever He might be, wherever He might show up in your life. Right? Stop trying to earn your way to him and just rest in the fact that he came to you. And just be. Right? So this is a matter of belief. And so what I encourage you to do is just rehearse these beliefs to yourself. And I think it, we are forgetful human beings. I think we're really um, just spend a whole lot of time forgetting things that we've learned and experienced in him. And so this requires a daily rehearsing of God's gospel in your life. And it requires you getting other people to speak it to yourself when you can't speak it to yourself. It requires you getting some good gospel literature and just pouring over it and just letting it infuse itself in your life. It's about getting in some good preaching where the gospel is going to be preached to you. right? It's about finding everything you can to remind yourself 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just believe it. Rest in it. Rest in the fact that, yes, I am far more sinful than I realized, but God is far more glorious than I knew. And he has made me far more righteous than I ever thought.